0: through chapter one, and we're going to be in the beginning of chapter two today. So if you would read with me, starting in verse one, Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Amen. All right, you can be seated, kids. You can go. All right, so this morning, we're going to take a break from Malachi. We're going to continue our walk through Philippians that I began last year, and we're going to look at these first four verses. And I really, I kind of debated on this quite a bit, actually, because I know some of you won't be too upset about this, but this may end up being a slightly shorter sermon. Um, Boo! Yeah, I know, I figured I'd get some booze there. But the next... The next portion that comes after this is such a significant passage. Um, I think one of the most significant in all of Scripture. Um, and we'll dig into that last time. But we're going to focus on these first four verses today. And looking at unity in the church. And I think some of the things that Doke just said, you know, talking about the things that are going on in the life of the church. I think indicate that there is a unity here at life Point. And I think that you'll see that as we walk through these verses today, that this, what, what Paul is calling the church in Philippi to do, I think that we see here going on here at Life Point. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited to walk through these first four verses. One commentator made an interesting connection between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He said that in the first chapter, we see the philosophy of Christian living. And it's summed up in one verse one famous verse, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we come to chapter 2, we come to, he says, the pattern for Christian living, which is the mind of Christ. So that's what we'll begin kind of to look at today in these first four verses. And like I said, next time we'll get into what I think is one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible. Now, what I want us to see in our time together this morning is Kind of an if-then statement that Paul makes here that has great implications for the church. And so we'll start with the if. Verse 1 in the ESV starts with so if. So if there is any encouragement in Christ. The so indicates that everything that it's about to be said here is tied to what he's already said to us in chapter 1. The if is really more of a since or because. Because this is the case, since this is the case. Paul is a very logical thinker. And this is a statement of logic that he's making to us. He's not questioning whether these things are true. He's saying because these things are true, then this is what should follow. We'll get to that later. But he begins here with what I believe are four truth statements that we'll kind of walk through. The first truth statement, that he makes here is that there is encouragement in Christ. I'm going to go on a brief tangent here, um, so bear with me, but this is, this is one of the things that I love so much about this book. Okay? There is great unity in this incredible book. It was written by, by, by 40 different authors in, under the inspiration of the Spirit over 1,600 years. Okay, And yet there is great, great unity in this book. And I think we see that even looking back at last week and what Dope talked about as he walked us through Malachi 3, 16 through 18. I tell you, it was such an encouraging sermon last week. If you were not here, have not been able to listen to it, I want to encourage you to do that this week. Listen to it. Go watch it on our Facebook page. Go watch it on our YouTube page. Um, it's well worth your time. But it ties in beautifully, I think, with what Paul said in chapter 1 and what he's saying here in the beginning of chapter 2. There is great encouragement in Christ because God is for us. Here are some of the things that Doke highlighted in Malachi 3 last week. He said, the Lord pays attention to the righteous. The righteous are remembered. The Lord claims and affirms his own. You'll remember that word that he used, segula. We are God's treasured possession. And he said that God preserves what he treasures. Now, if you were here when we kind of started this journey through Philippians, you might remember what Paul said back in verse 19 of chapter 1. He said this, he said, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Back in August, we looked at this and we saw that this was a quote from the book of Job. And we saw Paul's incredible confidence in Christ. Now, do you remember why he had such confidence? Well, because he believed what Job believed, that God delivers the righteous. That's what Doke talked us through in Malachi 3 last week. We looked at this incredible Old Testament principle. We looked at the book of Psalms, if you'll remember, and this went on and on throughout the Psalms, that God blesses the righteous. He establishes the righteous. He is with the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. Over and over and over again, we see this repeated, and that's what we looked at last week in Malachi, the things that Doak walked us through, and here again, it's being reinforced in Paul's letter to the Philippians. We can rejoice even in the face of death. We can be confident. Because of righteousness. We can rejoice because God will deliver us. He may deliver us in this life or he may deliver us eternally, but he will deliver the righteous. That's his word's promise. And that's what Paul's saying here in chapter 2, verse 1. There is encouragement in Christ. There's no question about that. He's not questioning it in any way, shape, or form. He is confident in this. There is great encouragement in Christ. The word encouragement here is the Greek word paraklesis. It means to come alongside and to help. And it might sound a bit familiar because it's a word closely related to the word that Jesus uses when he refers to the Holy Spirit as a helper in John 14. I want want to read this to us. I want you to listen to what Jesus said to his disciples and consequently to all who believe in him. He said this, If you love me, You will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Further down in that chapter, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He is the helper, the advocate, the counselor, the encourager. The most important and powerful encouragement in Christ comes from the indwelling spirit in the life of the believer. And I hope that you find encouragement in that today. So that's the first portion of this if statement that Paul makes here. There is great encouragement in Christ. Secondly, he says, if there is any comfort from love. Again, he's not questioning whether there is comfort from love. He's making a statement of logic, statement of truth. There is great comfort from love, And this is a statement that's closely related to the first one. The Greek word for comfort here conveys the idea of the Lord coming close, whispering words of gentle cheer or tender counsel in the believer's ear. It's a beautiful picture. A father bending down, coming close to whisper words of encouragement and cheer or gentle counsel in the ears of a child. Maybe some of us... Today need to hear that. God is for you. Alistair Begg said this. He said, one of the great prevailing predicaments of our contemporary lives is that so many of us are forlorn, lonely, bereft of companionship, feeling ourselves even in a crowd to be absolutely alone, managing to disguise it by our superficial conversation, by the thin veneer of a smile, but again walking away from companies of people and feeling absolutely desperately lost. The Christian need never be in that predicament because there is encouragement being united with Christ and there is comfort from his love. Amen. Thirdly, Paul says if there is any participation in the Spirit. Now, I personally don't think that that's the best translation here. Um, I don't think the English word participation conveys the full meaning of the word. This is a a well-known Greek word, koinonia, which means partnership or fellowship. In fact, some of your translations may even use the word fellowship here. But it also carries with it the idea of a shared life. Paul is saying, you share the life of the Spirit. He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of every believer. And he has poured his presence into our lives to provide power and strength and counsel and comfort and fellowship. Again, this is a truth that Paul is stating. He's not questioning the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is a statement of fact that he's just reiterating here. Fourthly, he says, if there is any affection and sympathy, we've already seen this word affection in our study in Philippians, it shows up in chapter one, verse eight, where Paul says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I mentioned this when we looked at that verse, but the Greek term here refers to the bowels. The bowels were, were regarded by the Hebrew people as the seat of tender affections, kindness, benevolence, and compassion. This was a deep-seated emotion that is, it's supernatural. It's given by Christ to those who belong to Christ. And God has extended his deep affection and compassion to every believer. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then what? So here begins this. Then, statement. Paul says, complete my joy. We've already learned in chapter one that Paul is rejoicing in the midst of difficult circumstances. He's rejoicing because the gospel message is being proclaimed. In some cases, it's being proclaimed out of wrong motives, but Paul rejoices nonetheless because it is being proclaimed, the gospel is being declared. So Paul is not lacking joy in his life, but he's asking the Philippian church to take his joy over the top. He's saying, fill me up. I want to know that you are doing these things. That, he says, will complete my joy. So he goes on here to mention three things that will complete his joy. They all sort of overlap and they all refer to unity in the church. So Paul didn't have very much to say against the church at Philippi. But one slight issue they were dealing with was a bit of disunity. This is mentioned over in chapter 4. If you want to turn there, you can look at it for just a second. Chapter 4, verse 2. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's, there are these two women who have been working side by side, but evidently they've come to some disagreement on something. Paul doesn't go into that with us, but he just encourages the believers there to encourage them to get back on the same page together. So this, this isn't a major issue that Paul's dealing with in the church, but he's just it's just this gentle warning of let's, let's get back on track. And I think it's something that we always, as the church, need to guard against any disunity that may creep in. So Paul is charging them to be united, to be of one mind. So the first thing that he says, we must be of the same mind. This means simply to be thinking the same way. We must be like minded. Ten of the 23 occurrences of this verb in the New Testament are found in this letter, which means this is a very critical aspect of Paul's letter to the Philippians. I want to read to you what John MacArthur had to say about this. He says, Unanimity of thought. You have to think the same way, and that means doctrinal unity. Christianity, he says, is first and foremost about the mind. It's about the renewing of the mind. It's about how you think. It's about tearing down every idea raised up against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought captive to Christ. The very foundation of this unity is truth. Truth. Proclaimed truth. Explained truth. Implied truth. Applied truth. It all begins with doctrine. He says it all begins with truth. He goes on to say, he said, you don't get unity from shared emotion. You don't get unity from shared experience. We're not trying to create an experience. We're not trying to induce emotion from you. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And the only unity that is ever going to mean anything is that unity that is consistently bound by truth. You can't be of the same mind. You can't think the same way unless you are attached to the same realities. Unity comes when believers think alike. That's to say when they have basically been surrounded by the truth. And it's that truth that holds them like metal shavings to a magnet, which is the written truth. One thing to note here is that these are not suggestions that Paul is making. These aren't options for us to consider. They are commands. He's writing them as commands to the church. We must be of the same mind. It's non-negotiable. Secondly, we must have the same love. This is simply tying back to what he already said in verse 1. The love with which Christ loves us is the love with which we must love one another. That is that deep-seated affection that is supernatural, and it comes from Christ. Listen to this from 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, He says again. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. says, I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom
1: he has seen.
0: For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's unity, unity based on the love of God that is in us. We must have the same love. Thirdly, he says, we should be in full accord and of one mind. Full accord is, is a. I think it's, it's a great, it's a really cool Greek term. It comes from two Greek words, one meaning together and the other meaning soul. And it's the only use of this term in scripture. And some have even suggested that it was a term that Paul coined. It means one-souled. Describes people who are knit together in harmony, having the same desires, passions, and ambitions. As a church, we are to be one-souled. Paul calls for this type of behavior in some of his other letters. Romans 15:5 and 6 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.10 He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 2 Corinthians 12.11 He says, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. I think it's important to note here that Paul's not asking them or us to be carbon copies of each other. God's created us as individual beings. To be of one mind is to let the mind of Christ be in you. And that permits differences of expression, differences in gifts, differences in methods of service, and even differences in minor doctrines. But we are to be united. We are to agree. And I just think that's one of the things that I think is beautiful about LifePoint. I see great unity in this church. There's very little disagreement that goes on. Yeah, we have minor ones from time to time, but it's not a major issue that we have to deal with here. And I pray that that would long continue, and it it will continue if we are focused on being united. If we're centered on the encouragement that we have in Christ, the
1: comfort that we have from his love. So Paul's given us the if, he's given us the then, and now I think he's going to lay out the how. Three more things here. First, he says, we are to do nothing from
0: selfish ambition. He referred to selfish ambition in chapter one because he was dealing with people who were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. He said, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, he said, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. His instructions to the Philippian church was to not do anything out of selfish ambition. James also addressed this in his letter. James 3:14 through16 says, "But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice." Selfish ambition leads only to disorder and to disunity. And so we must guard against that. Secondly, he said, we are to do nothing from conceit. It's a very similar term, and it refers to the pursuit of personal glory. The pursuit of personal glory is the motivation behind selfish ambition. Galatians 5.26, Paul says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. Paul also warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power.
1: Avoid such people, he said. So
0: conceit's right there listed with all that other stuff that Paul lists off. In contrast to these two things, Paul says we should be humble. That's the third thing. Be humble. Put others before yourself. The scriptures speak extensively about humility. It is to be a mark of the believer's life. Just read a few of these. Proverbs 22.4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Zephaniah 2.3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Ephesians 4, 1-3, Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3.12. He says, put on then. Put it on like you put on clothes in the morning. As God's chosen holy ones, holy and beloved, he said, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Peter says something very similar. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In verse 4 here in Philippians, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Key word in that sentence is, others. J. Vernon McGee in his commentary on Philippians said, it is the Christian faith which made that word others important. Why did Christ come from heaven's glory to this earth? It was for others. Why should we carry the gospel for others? To think of others rather than ourselves is having
1: the mind of Christ. So
0: that's Philippians 2 1 through 4. It's a pretty clear call to unity in the church. The picture of unity here, being in full accord and of one mind, revolves around Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. When you keep reading on, you see one of the most awesome pictures of Jesus anywhere in the Bible. It's a picture of his humanity and his deity, his love and his sacrifice, his humility and his exaltation. Jesus is the one who unites us in the church. So Paul says, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having
1: the same love. He's talking about the love of Jesus who laid his life down for us. When we
0: look to the interests of others more so than our own, and I think that's interesting there. Paul doesn't say to ignore your own interests, but we're to look to others' interests more than our own.
1: When we do that as the church, we're all taken care of. We become less and less selfish. We become more and more selfless because we see others more than we see ourselves. And
0: when we do that, when we can see others more than we can see ourselves, we can see what people are going through. We can see the hurt
1: in people's eyes, we can see the pain. And then we know how to pray. We know how to talk to them. We know how to encourage them. Because we're thinking less of ourselves. When we see this in the world around us all the time, when we're focused on ourselves, we lose sight of other people. We walk right past people who are hurting because we don't see it. We're too focused on me. The world will scream at us all this week. Chase your dreams. Follow your heart's desires. Make your way to the top, no matter what it costs. And all of that goes contrary to what we've read here today. We must be a people who put others first. That's what creates unity in the church. And I think that we're good at that here at LifePoint. And I want to commend you as a
0: church for that. I think there's always room for us to grow in that. And that's my challenge to us today. So we'll leave here thinking about
1: these things this week. Who are you going to run across this week that needs you,
0: are you going to have those spiritual eyes open to see their need, or are you going to blow right past them because you're too focused on yourself? Let's be a people
1: who pursue Christ first, who put others before ourselves, and are united behind the love of Christ.